Not not in four weeks. There are plenty of them. But for the next four weeks, we're going to look at four uh, of them. Um, we're going to... don't know which ones exactly we're going to look at, but somewhere in there will be... Um, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. And then we're going to look at uh, the father forgets our sins, remembers our sins no more. We're going to talk about, we talked about that one on Wednesday night already, actually, if, if my Wednesday night folks remember. Uh, we'll talk about that again. Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're going to t- talk about that verse. Y'all probably talked about it. If you're in Philippians, you talked about it this morning in Sunday school. Uh, that was Philippians 4.13. So, those are some of the verses that we are bad to misquote. We are bad to use them in an incorrect context. Well, Jeremiah 29.11 is one of those verses as well. The verse is in the Bible. We will talk about one verse eventually that isn't in the Bible. Um, God will never put on you more than you can handle. We quote that verse a lot, and that's nowhere in the Bible. We're going to talk about the verse that that comes from. And then we're going to talk about the principle behind that saying, but it's still one of those misquoted verses. Oh, judge not, lest ye be judged. We're going to talk about that one. That's one of my favorite ones to, to uh, debunk because we, we so... Well, that's not, usually not Christians. It's usually non-Christians using that against us. We'll talk about that one, too. Uh, we've got a bunch to look at. There are a lot of verses we use wrong. Jeremiah 29.11, though, is one of those that we... Um, often, often take out of context and use in order to mean things that it didn't originally mean. The verse, For I know the plans I have for you, uh, this is the Lord's declaration, plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, by itself, that verse is true. Absolutely. But we have to know who Jeremiah was talking to, what they were talking about, what he was talking about, what was going on in this situation to understand the context. Then we start, hopefully, start using that verse differently. It it in no way, and this is the great thing about this verse and and the others as well, it, it it in no way reduces the power of the verse. As a matter of fact, I believe when we understand the verse in context, it increases its power in our lives. That goes for all the Bible. We use verses in context because that's how God intended them. That's why he inspired the Bible the way he inspired it. So when we get those verses in context, they actually mean more and affect our lives more positively than using them incorrectly. So let's look at the context. Verses 10 through 14 primarily, uh, but actually all of Jeremiah 29 is one letter. Uh, actually, Jeremiah 29, uh, 1 through, uh, I believe, 19, uh, or maybe it's 14, and it skips 15 through 19 and 20. But most of the letter is, is uh, or most of the chapter, rather, is all one letter. But this immediate context helps, to, helps us the most. For this is what the Lord says, When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you, And will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. 
I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place I deported you from. Now, context immediately should bring some things to mind. This, this letter by Jeremiah was written to the exiles, the, the, the exiles of Judah who were in Babylon at this time. Um, there was a group carried off in 605 B.C. to Babylon. This was the group that included Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are all in that first group. And then some eight years later or so, maybe uh, maybe nine years later, seven or nine years to nine years later, Jeremiah wrote this letter. 597 B.C. is the, the date that'll be on the screen. Uh, it, it could have been a couple of years later. It could have been all the way to 594 B.C. But regardless, that's when uh, around the time that, that Jeremiah writes this letter to the folks in Babylon. This is not to the people in Israel. To the ones that are already in, uh, in captivity in Babylon. Then Jer- Jerusalem is destroyed in 586 B.C. This is when Israel comes to an end and no longer exists as its own self-ruled country until 1948 A.D. So for, well, uh, nearly, what's that? That's nearly 2,500 years, Israel doesn't exist. There are highs, there are lows. They, they, they tried with the Maccabees a couple of hundred years before uh, Jesus came along. They revolted in 70 A.D., and that's when the temple was finally destroyed. Rome had enough of them, destroyed the temple. Um, And then there was nothing. There was no country of Israel until the U.N. created one in 1948. Now, if you're thinking, oh, Israel exists, and and this is... Here's tonight's message. Here's the rabbit I'm chasing. Um... If you're thinking, oh, Israel exists, the end times are almost here. Well, remember, we have a political Israel now. We do not have a spiritual Israel. There still is no temple. The the Holy Spirit is not there. God has not rested on the temple. It is purely political at this point. So we don't put as much weight on the existence of Israel now, biblically, as we would have at this time, because it was still a spiritual Israel. That's a whole other conversation. Uh, that's actually a multi-week study. I just I say that because we get so caught up. Yeah, I'm still over here on this rabbit. Uh, we get so caught up on uh, you know the signs and everything that could happen, and Jesus could come back tomorrow, and He could. I'm not I'm not saying He could, but He could, but come back in a thousand years too. Uh, we don't want to quit as if, well, we're done because everything's ready for him. We keep going as if he could come back tomorrow, but also as if he could come back for a thousand years. And a lot of people use the existence of Israel to prove their their uh, end of the world point. And we don't want to do that because it's not, it's just a political Israel. All right, now, back on the main path here. Um, there's a map, or there, somewhere there was a map, I thought. Was there a map? That, there we go. That shows you the, the route of the deportation. Um, why they took them so far north, I'm not sure, but they took them north. And then they brought them over here to Babylon and they settled in these uh, areas. That they actually named some of the towns. Uh, there's uh, y- Y'all can't read it, 
and I can't either. I'm not. I'm not fooling you in any. Uh, I'm not trying to fool you. I just know what it says. Uh, they named a Tel Aviv over here in in Babylon in Babylonia. They they did things to to remind them of home. I mean, think of migrations across the U.S. Why do we have a Rome, Georgia? Why do we have an Athens, Georgia? Well, they were naming them after cities that that existed. We we have towns in particularly in Massachusetts or, or New England named after cities in England because they were just naming them after home. Well, that's what they did. Sir? Iowa, Louisiana. That's right. That's another rabbit. That, that's not a story that... Uh, I made a complete fool of myself one time. Didn't know it. I don't, I've probably told some of y'all the story. I, I'll tell it later. It, there's no point in interrupting the message now. Don't get me off track, Gilbert. Too easily... I'm too easy a rabbit chaser. Okay, so they're they're deported. Uh, they're sitting over there. They've been there for uh, mm, five to ten years, and there are prophets. And we see it in uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter twenty-eight, verse three, that say false prophets that say it's going to be a two-year captivity. Within two years, this is a false prophet saying this. Within two years, I will restore to this place all the articles of the Lord's temple that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took from here and transported to Babylon. There's some guy out there saying, I'm a prophet of God, and y'all, we're only going to be in Babylon. We're going to only be uh, um, uh, in uh, exile for two years. Jeremiah had a different, uh, different message for him. He tells them to settle in. Jeremiah... Uh, Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 29. Start in verse 4. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to the exiles. Not some false prophet. That's his, that's his point. The God of Israel says to the exiles, I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I've deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Jeremiah tells the folks, settle in. Build, build houses, grow crops, get married, reproduce, make it home. Because it's going to be home. That's what he's telling them. That's the context. This is the beginning of the letter. This fool over here tells you two years. It's going to be 70 years, y'all. Settle in. Pray for the city. Pray for Babylon in verse 7. It says, Because their peace in the midst of your deportation, in the midst of your exile, the peace of Babylon is your peace. If they struggle, you will struggle. Historically, about the time that this pro- the false prophet was saying two years was a time of some unsteadiness in Babylon. There were there were some uh, there was some palace intrigue. There were some problems, and so it stands to reason everybody was getting a little excited. Oh, Babylon's about to fall. We're going to go home, and this false prophet was giving false hope and. Jeremiah corrects him by saying, no, no, it's, it's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, you need to pray that there's peace in Babylon, then there will be peace in your cities. Pray that there is prosperity in Babylon, then there will be prosperity in your homes. And God tells them 
that the exile will last 70 years in verse 10. 70 years, not two. Now, if you if you run the, the quick math, very few of the people who receive the promise will live to see it fulfilled. He's telling them, and, and we don't even know, we're not real sure when the 70 years started. If you look back at those uh Consider those dates that I gave you at the beginning. The first deportation was in 605. So maybe, maybe we're talking about 530 uh, B.C. That would be the earliest for the 70 years. But maybe the 70 years didn't start until 586 when Jerusalem was completely destroyed. And so the earliest that the 70 years could be up would be uh, 516 B.C. So we don't know. We don't know when the 70 years started. We don't know when the 70 years began. But regardless of, of that, whether whichever date it is, from 605, the, whichever the, whatever the beginning date is, from 605 B.C. to 586 B.C., it doesn't matter because if you're alive in those years, chances are you are not going to be alive to see the end of the 70 years. If you're... A child? Maybe. But if you're, you know, basically 20 and up, give it up. I mean, it's, it's, you're, you're not going to see this promise fulfilled. This is, a, this is probably the most important aspect of the context to understand. We use this verse uh, usually to say, yay, God's watching out for me. That's not who he's talking to. But let's go on and we'll, we'll see that that's, uh, uh, that's what the context is. So the promise isn't for the people he's talking to. He's, the promise is not for the recipients. The promise is not for the folks who just went into exile, those who went with Daniel and heard the false prophet say it was two years the promise also did not change those people's present reality. It didn't. That promise in no way changed what they were doing because the command immediately prior, just a few verses prior, was get married, or build houses, plant crops, get married, have kids, live your life. And then he gives them this promise for their future. I know what I have planned, he says. I know uh, what your future is. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. See, he's telling them, these people who have fully believed that God has abandoned them. That he has not abandoned them. And if that's the way we're quoting this verse, God has not abandoned me, then great. Because that is true. But the promise to the, the command to not lose hope is based on the fact that the promise is not that the trial will end, but that you will be sustained through it. Remember, they're going to die in captivity. It'll be a good two generations before they begin to come back home, before Ezra leads a few out, Nehemiah builds the wall and those kinds of things. It'll be... Quite some time. So this promise is that you will be sustained through the trial. That's the hope. 
The hope is for the future that these people are producing, not for their current, present reality. The promise is not that nothing bad is supposed to happen to you, but that God has a plan for every eventuality. We use this verse too often to say this situation is out of the ordinary. I'm not supposed to go through this. This isn't what's meant for me. God has a plan for my future, a hope. It's, it's, it's good, it's great things, not what I'm going through. This is the way the, our, our, our feel-good preachers preach it. This isn't for you. This bad time isn't for you to experience, really. This is not... You're, you're, you, you didn't deserve this. This isn't uh, 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 for you. This is, this is just a bad time. You need to look to the future. And God said, first of all, especially in the context, this experience is absolutely because of you. These people are in exile because of their disobedience. This situation was brought about by their disobedience. In the midst of that, in the midst of the discipline, though, God is saying, I have a plan for this discipline. I have a plan for this situation that you brought yourself into. And I believe that is a greater promise than any sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, any health and wealth message that, he, that might be used with this passage. God is saying, even in my harshest discipline of you, I have a plan to bless you and to prosper you and take care of you at the end of it. There's a hope. There is a purpose for what you're going through right now. And that purpose is greater than you can understand, greater than you can see. The third point here, the third way we don't lose hope is that the promise isn't that you will be rescued, but that you will be a witness and a testimony. These people would not be rescued from the situation. Their kids very likely would not be rescued from the situation. Their grandkids very likely would not be rescued from the situation. It would not be until the great-grandkids and maybe a generation or two more that people would, be, would begin to be brought out. But what would they, if, if, if the parents and the grandparents and the great-grandparents and the great-great-grandparents are faithful, what will those who have been brought out say? We have been raised to trust God. We have been raised in the midst of a land that isn't ours among people that aren't our relatives, aren't our uh, uh, religion, aren't our race even. Among these people, we have prospered. Why? Because we were faithful. Because we understood God was faithful to us. That's the testimony. That's the promise. Not the 70 years later. The hope is the right now. The hope that it is that in the midst of my trial, whether I've brought it on myself or not, God has a purpose in that trial. And that purpose might not be to bless me. It might be that the purpose is to bless other people because of what I'm going through. That's a hard pill to swallow. A lot of times we want to ask why 
Why am I going through this? And we want a clear answer at the end of it. We want to be able to look back and say, oh, now I get it. How many times have you gotten that, though? What's the percentage of times that you've gotten that clear, now I understand? I think it's going to be a pretty low number if we're honest with ourselves. But what did other people see if you were faithful in that time? If you were obedient in that time, if you rested on God's promise to hold you and sustain you in that time, what is your testimony? What have people said about you? Wow. I want faith like that person. Because no matter what they went through, they always look to Christ. That's, that's who I want to be. That's the promise and the testimony. But as we look through this passage, I will attend to you, uh, I will uh, uh, build houses, etc., etc. Don't lose hope. In verse, uh, verse 11, don't lose, don't lose the hope, but also don't lose the responsibility. There, there are things that the people were supposed to do. If we stop at verse 11, if we stop at the hope, we've messed up. But verse 12 tells us the responsibility. You will call to me. You will come and pray to me. You will seek me. You will search for me. I love the way the verb is phrased. Now, uh, some of your translations, and, and they do this wrong, they, they get it right, some of them, um, in verse 14, the beginning of 14 gets it right. I believe it's supposed to be the same way, if I remember correctly, uh, in verse uh, 12 and verse 13. The way the verb for finding God is phrased is not that God's off in the corner behind the chairs and we've got to look around like we're playing hide and seek with God and, ooh, boom, suddenly we found him. Yay, good us. The verb is phrased, I will be found by you. Now, when you're writing a letter, when you're writing a paper for school, you're not supposed to use the passive voice. That's the passive voice. Why? Who's passive in that, in that uh, if you remember your grammar, our English teacher's not here. Uh, if you remember your, your grammar lessons, the passive person in I will be found by you, is the you. God has put himself in the active role of being found. It's kind of counterintuitive. But what that tells us is that when we call, when we pray, when we seek, when we search, God puts himself in a position to be found by us. He's not hiding. In the midst of our trial, in the midst of our exile, our deportation, whatever it is we're going through... <clears throat> Excuse me. God is not hiding. He's not sitting there behind a chair, behind a bush. Well, if they just find me, everything will be okay. But I'm going to sit here. Hush, angels. That's not Him. When we pray, when we seek, there He is. Wanting us to know. Wanting us to have confidence. Wanting us to have hope in our trial. I'm right here. I have not left you. The problem is you quit looking for me. 
you started looking around. We, we, we see that, I think, most clearly in the New Testament when Peter steps out on the water. When he keeps his eyes on Jesus, he walks just fine on the water. But the scripture says, then he saw the waves. Why did he see the waves? Because he took his eyes off his master. He took his eyes off God. He saw his situation and he no longer saw the one who told him to walk on the water. And he started to sink. When we seek him, when we call on him, when we pray to him, when we search for him, he will listen. He will be found. He will, he goes on to say, restore in verse 14. I will be found by you and I will restore your fortunes. When in the midst of our trial, when in the midst of our exile, when in the midst of our lost situation, we call and pray and seek and search and he listens and he makes himself found and he restores. What he is doing there is revealing himself, his plans and his work. So we come to him, we're in our situation, we call to him, we seek, we pray, and he says, here I am. You can see me. You can talk to me. I have not left you. But more than that, not only have I not left you, I've got plans for this. I've got plans for this situation. Yes, trust me. This that you're going through, this illness, this this job loss, this this whatever it is, this dark time of the soul. I have plans for this and I have work that I want you to do because of it. Raise your family, raise the, the, the city, pray for where you are. So there's peace there and prosperity there. Pray in the midst of your situation so that in the midst of your situation, you are blessing those around you. God shows himself what he's plans to do and what he's doing. But our responsibility is to get our relationship right with him. That's our responsibility. When we are in exile, when we are deported, we need to work on our relationship. Whether it was our lack of relationship to begin with that got us there or not, that was the case here. Israel's lack of relationship got them moved to Babylon. That isn't always our case, but it is often our case that that's the result, that our situation is the result of our decisions. But regardless, whether it's our fault or not, we seek the same God. We seek Him and we understand that it is our our, our necessity to build our relationship. I wish I could say that sometime last week or in the weeks prior, I had planned tonight's message to build on this morning's message. I would love to take all that credit, but I didn't. It wasn't until after I decided to do this tonight that I began to connect the the pruning that goes on in our lives and in our church with tonight's message of God, knowing exactly what he's doing and why in order to better us. Maybe we're good, but he wants us best. Maybe we're doing okay, but he knows we can improve. Maybe he, maybe we have done everything we're supposed to, but he is going to cut and snip and trim and remove fruit so that we produce even better fruit. 
Well, that's what he's doing. He's pruning Israel right now. For in, in this time, this Babylonian captivity is just one more way he is pruning the vine. Doing those things that are necessary in the end to get them ready for the Messiah. This, this too is a, it's a different sermon, but I'm going to chase this rabbit just a little bit. When God called Abraham out of Ur, Abraham was a polytheist. Many gods. And God spoke to Abraham and said, I'm it. I'm the only one. Abraham believed it. Abraham followed it. And then, and that's 2000-ish B.C. And then for the next 1,500 years, Israel, what became Israel from Isaac and uh, then Jacob and then the 12 sons, what became Israel struggled with the patriarchs' polytheism. They lived in a land of many gods, and that was what ultimately got Israel, first Judah, the northern kingdom, carried off to Assyria, then the southern kingdom uh, of, did I say northern kingdom Judah? Northern kingdom Israel carried off to Assyria, southern kingdom of Judah exiled to Babylon. What got them there was chasing other gods. So God is now, in 586 B.C., destroys Israel. He is now pruning them even more to get them ready, to get them to understand it's just me. To, to understand the Shema, there is one God. There is only one God. And that's it. No other gods. So he's, he's whittling them down. Many gods, few gods, and they start doing this number. Oh, one God, bunch of gods, one God, bunch of gods, one God, bunch of gods. They cannot get it straight until Babylon. And then it clicks. They were a little dense. What, what can we say? Captivity did it. So when they come out of captivity, finally, Ezra preaches to them from the word. They spend the next two or three, four hundred years fighting Greeks and other people. And we get to when Jesus steps up and says, the father and I are one. What does Israel say? What do the people say? What, what's their response to God, uh, to Jesus saying he's also God? There's only one God, dude. There can't be you and God. Because we got the message. There is one God, not multiple gods. Ain't happening. We're not buying it. Instead, we're going to kill you. And what got him killed was him saying, the Father and I are one. I'm one with God. All of this process, all of these years, was them, him getting the people ready to flip it on them and say, you're right, there aren't many gods. There's only one God, but that one God shows up in three persons, going to introduce you to the Trinity now and really blow your mind. And they're going to struggle with that for the next 2,000 years and counting. But nonetheless, we only worship one God. But that, that time here in Babylon was what purified them, what pruned them, what took away those things that they needed taken away, though their propensity to follow other gods and say, no, there is one God. Aha, now you're ready for me to introduce my son to you. And that's what he did. They were pruning. They were being uh, molded. So our responsibility is to, to get the relationship right with him. That's what they were doing in Babylon. 
take this time, get this responsibility right, uh, get this relationship right with him. And then he took care of the details. He prospered them. When they came home, uh, we read Nehemiah, Ezra, when they came back, they were miserable. They, they missed, they were almost, not quite, but almost as bad as the people that left Egypt. Take us back to Egypt, where we at least had spices and stuff. Oi, can't we just, you know, it was at least good to eat. And they kind of had the same idea here, at least in Babylon. You know, they, they, we had homes, we had families. They, they didn't remember. Remember, nobody, nobody's alive that had been, when they come back, nobody's alive that had been there originally. All brand new. And they were struggling. But God was going to take care of the details. Get the relationship right, and I'll take care of the details. So when we quote this verse, I'm not telling you don't quote this verse. I'm t- I'm, I want you to quote this verse accurately. I want you to quote this verse as it was intended. In the midst of my trial, I know that God is going to use this trial for His purposes. And that might mean I get out of this trial. It also might mean I don't get out of this trial. Because the promise was to people who would never see the promise fulfilled. So we need to come to grips with that. We need to understand that the promise, while it may be to us, it's not just for us. And we can take this in a number of different directions. My salvation is to me, but it's not just for me. I'm saved to a purpose. I'm saved to see other people saved. I'm saved to share the gospel. I'm saved to do good works, unto good works, the New Testament says. So that's the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11. Quote it. Quote it like crazy. Quote it accurately. Quote it knowing that you've got a God who's going to take care of those details. And you just need to be faithful and work on that relationship. I'm at the bottom of my page, so that means I'm done. Any questions? Is this surprising to anybody? Or is it like, uh, Michael, tell us something we don't know. Yes, ma'am, shoot, I like questions. I could not tell you. That's a great question. It, I, I, I doubt it. Well, I was gonna, that's what I was going to say. That might have been the best trade route. Because you think about it, that's the way um, Abraham came too. Abraham went way north, and then came when he came from Ur, you know, around the area that they were exiled to. Uh, they, they actually did go back to see family. They just didn't realize it. Um, distant cousins. Abraham came to Israel by going way north and coming down, and then they went back up. So it may have had something to do with the trade routes. Um, I'm not real sure about that, though. On the one hand, I, I love questions. But the only, on the other hand, I think I am an excellent explainer. If y'all don't have questions, it's just all clear. Yeah, Lee. Ooh. All right. Well, let's pray and close. <laughs> Somebody's going to be a smart aleck and ask a hard question. The equivalent passage in the New Testament is what he asked. Um, 
I have not given that an ounce of thought. So I don't know. I'm, if, I, if I think of it, yeah, and y'all can help me. Uh, what would be? I'll turn that one around. What, what do y'all think would be a, 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 a New Testament restatement of that? I've come and give you life and give it more abundantly. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. Yeah, I think so. Well, that one's just so dumb. I'm not even gonna gonna uh, cover it. But uh, but but the one where uh, and, and God helps those who help themselves. That's another one that's not a, not even close to anything that's in the Bible. Um, but that one, I think, goes along with uh, what I am going to cover. Um, God will never give you more than you can bear. Those two go hand in hand. Uh, but we'll talk about that one in a, in a few weeks. I'm intrigued by your question, Lee. I want to I want to think about that some more and see if I can come up with some some of the New Testament uh, verses. Ultimately, though. While the promise is there, if, if we remember that Jesus replaces Israel, I won't say we don't need that verse, but we are never, as believers, truly in exile. Um, but I think there, there are equivalent promises. I'm just not thinking of them at the moment. I have an easier question or, or a harder question that I can answer. I don't mind hard questions as long as I can answer them. All right. Or not just a question, a, a comment. Anybody have anything to add to it? Something I missed? I'm certainly not beyond that. Absolutely. <clears throat> Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely right. I, and I, that... Other than the whole context thing, that that to me really is the kicker of that verse. If you seek me, you pray to me, call to me, I will be found by you. God does not hide from us. So, yeah, people that say, I just can't find him, then you're really not looking. Or you're looking for a God who isn't there. You're not looking for the God who is there. Good sermon title. Looking for the God who isn't there. Write that. Somebody write that down. Um, absolutely. Did you start to say something again, Lee?
Oh, yeah. I mean, we start talking about the refining and conforming to Christ's image, and we're getting all over what uh, what Paul was writing to the churches. But uh, the, the, the promise of suffering, uh, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 10, 11, you're, you're ble- or 9 and 10, you're blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then he goes on to say, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. But wait, we're being persecuted. How can we be salt and light if we're being persecuted? Because of that relationship. Because the promise is uh, to to bless and, and, and a future. And that future is... Here's the other thing we do with this verse. We want to make it all about us. Me. We do that with the whole Bible. Me, me, me. The Bible's about me. The Bible's about me. This verse is about me. This is a promise to me. No, the Bible's about God. I'm a, I'm a part of that. It's, it's about God working to get me. It's about Jesus coming to save me. But when we make the promises more about to whom the promise is made and not from whom the promise came, that's when we mess up. I deserve this. We're a kid stomping our feet. You said I'd prosper. You said I'd prosper. When God is saying, I said I'd take care of you. I also said I was in charge. I also said I know what's best. So you rest in what I'm doing. Seek me, find me, pray to me, call to me. I'll be found with you. Let me worry about the details, and we'll get through this. A lot of implications. We could go on for quite some time. The e-groups aren't out yet, so we've really got, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. I don't hear them talking, and they're usually pretty loud. Uh Uh-huh. Well, they, the, the, the Trinity, he, he introduced it slowly. I and the Father are one. And then he occasionally talked about the Holy Spirit and, and that kind of thing. And uh, then we see that more fully developed as he inspires Paul and the other New Testament writers. Jesus hits it a few times, but it was something that, that he, he gradually introduced it. But what they did was they killed him. You can't be equal to God. You cannot be the same as God. Uh, that's blasphemy. They rent their clothes and said, do we need any more witnesses? He said it with his own mouth, crucify him. And, and that's what they did. I mean, he was arrested because he was, did all the miracles, but they pinned on him blasphemy. But yeah, it, 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 it completely, I mean, it did. It blew their minds. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Thank you all for listening. Lord, we do thank you that your, your plans are to prosper us, to, to give us a future and a hope. God, we thank you that that is absolutely what you have in store for us. But, but Lord, let us not lose sight of the fact that, that the promise is based on, has its origin in you. We don't deserve any of that. You are a gracious and merciful God, and you, you pour out blessings on us. 
And so we pray that that we will see our exile, our, our suffering, our trial, whatever it is, as an opportunity to increase our relationship with you, purify our relationship with you as a as a time to be pruned, to have uh, good fruit removed for the better fruit or have old dead branches trimmed or or whatever you're doing in our lives. We, we pray that we would see that opportunity, that trial as an opportunity for that, but also as an opportunity to be a witness and a testimony to those who are around us, to those who may who will come after us, that we may never see, we may never know what effect the trial in our life has on people two, three, four generations down the road. And God, we just we can't see that far. We 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 think there's just no way my little trial here is going to affect that kind of that many people that far away. And yet God, you have done so much more with so much less. So if we trust you, if we if we seek you, if we call to you, if we pray to you, we will be uh, you will be found by us. You will show yourself to us. And then you will you will do things in our lives that we can't explain. You will do things in others' lives that we can't explain. And and we will get to see you at work. We'll get to see the glory of the God whom we serve. And then we'll look at our lives and say, wow, is, is anything too great for God? We rest in that. We rest in that promise and that trust, knowing that you do have great plans. And if we will just work on that relationship, if we will be committed to you, you'll take care of the details. We don't have to worry about those things. We thank you for that. Keep us safe this week, Lord. Keep us grounded in you, firmly on our foundation of Jesus, so that every day we are uh, focused on you, focused on our call, focused on our ministry and evangelistic opportunities. Lord, may everything we do be for your glory and to your ends. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.